If you will, turn with me now in your Bibles to Malachi chapter 3. We'll be reading from verses 13 to 15, just a, a short little section here this morning. Malachi chapter 3, verses 13 to 15. This, the book is about to take a very sharp turn. We've been going through, and there have been at this point six different moments, as you've been keeping track, where the Lord has spoken to Israel, essentially called them out for an area of sin, and they have responded seemingly without any conviction, so as to question him. The Lord says, I have loved you, and they have said, how have you loved? The Lord has said, you have polluted and despised me, and they say, how have we done that? The Lord says, I will not accept your offering, and they say, why do you not accept it? He says, you've wearied me, and they say, how have we wearied you? He has said, you have robbed me, and they have said, how have you robbed? And this morning, we'll be looking at this idea of, how have you, you have spoken against me? And they say, how have you spoken again? How have we spoken against? And essentially what we're going to be getting into with this is this idea that Israel is looking at and they're complaining as they are interacting with the Lord, saying, the evil, the wicked people of this world prosper. What is even the point of following after you? Why? Because we look around us And you do nothing to judge. And though it may seem that the wicked prosper, we will see this morning that true life and hope can only be found in complete surrender to Christ and by drawing near to the heart of God. So if you will with me this morning, let's read from Malachi chapter 3, verses 13 to 15. It says, Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge, of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test, and they can escape. Or they escape, I'm sorry. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. When I was young, I used to love to watch television shows like Andy Griffith and Bonanza. This was my childhood, watching reruns of these television shows. And I think one of the reasons why I always enjoyed these shows was because within 30 minutes or 60 minutes, if it was something like Bonanza, and so I loved about it, cowboys and Indians running around for an hour was was the best for me as as a young boy. But for 30 minutes, within 30 minutes or 60 minutes, you always saw the story build up. There was some sort of evil, there was some sort of drama, and then it was resolved by the end of the time. Within 30 to 60 minutes, evil had been dealt with. Move on. And there is a sense within us when we watch something like that, we feel a a sense of satisfaction. And the reason being because as humans, with God's image imprinted upon our hearts, there is a recognition that evil must be dealt with. Evil cannot go unpunished. It must be taken care of. 
And while it is that you may watch a television show and within the, the brief time frame that it's on, it is dealt with and addressed, we all know as humans that this is not really how life works. Evil is not necessarily dealt with within 30 to 60 minutes. But it can often seem as if evil may go unpunished for years and years. And it may seem as if the wicked are allowed to do what they want forever. And that is ultimately what Israel is struggling with this morning as they're conversing with the Lord. And he says to them, Your words have been hard against me. How have we spoken against you, they respond. And he says, you have said, it is vain to serve God. And why? Because they're looking and they're saying, the wicked go unpunished. Throughout the course of this morning, what we're going to be doing as we look at this passage is just asking questions as we look through this. The first being... Is it actually vanity to serve God? Because if we're honest, as I just acknowledged, we look around us, and oftentimes it very well may seem as if evil and wickedness is going unpunished. So is it actually vanity to serve God? And from that place, we have to ask ourselves, well, why might it seem like vanity? To serve God. Why might it seem like a futile exercise to serve the Lord? Why might it seem like it's something that is not worth our time? I would offer to you that the reason why it may seem this way is because essentially for us in our hearts, if we are feeling that way, as if there's no point in this, why would I even follow after the Lord? Is because ultimately to follow the Lord has become a list of right and wrongs for us to do. It has become a set of things that we must accomplish, a checklist, if you were, if you will, that if I do X and Y and Z, good things happen. And if and I watch the wicked, they're not doing those same things, so why is there no punishment coming to them? But the struggle that's happening there is something that's deep within us. And it's ultimately that this is a list of things which we ourselves can never perfectly accomplish. It's essentially works righteousness, that we are trying to live out our faith in a perfect manner. Trying to say, look at me, God. Look at all the good things that I have done. And this, if you've been paying attention to the first five Six sermons that I've preached through Malachi is what we refer to as dead religion. The people saying to God, haven't we done what is right? Haven't we done what is good? You see, the issue isn't that the wicked are actually prospering. The issue isn't that the wicked are getting away with what they're doing. The issue is that our hearts don't understand how God works. And then our hearts are thinking that God ought to love us more because we're doing what is right. We're looking at the wicked and saying, God, you're letting them do what they do. That must mean you love them. But look at me. Look at all the good things that I've done. 
Don't you love me? This is essentially the issue with the prodigal son. Right? Prodigal son goes away. He does all these wicked things. He comes back. The father receives him. And what does the brother say? Look at me. I've toiled with you all this time. I've never gone off and wasted the money. I've never gone off and disrespected you. But the problem with the older son in that situation is that his heart has never changed. His heart has turned things into a list of right and wrong that he must accomplish. And if he does that, the Lord will love him more. So what is the antidote to all of this? How do we deal with that heart of works righteousness? Because if we are honest, we all struggle with it in one way or another. It is hard not to. As humans, we are naturally inclined to want to be pleasers of others and to have other people like us. And that plays out in our relationship with our Heavenly Father, desiring that He love us for what we have done. So what is the way that we deal with this? The question we must ask ourselves is, what is it that I love more than God? Because ultimately what's happening here is it becomes an issue of an idolatry. What is it that I love more than God that is keeping me from understanding how God's love actually works? You see, what the Lord desires is our whole heart. And part of getting our whole heart is understanding that you are a broken, sinful person, undeserving of the love of God, and yet it has been freely given to you. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all Vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. How does that connect there? Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. The things that you care about, the things that you love, will come out in your heart's affections, come out in your actions. So whether it is money, power, knowledge, comfort, whatever it is, If your heart is not fully given towards the Lord, you're going to feel this sense of trying to live in these two kingdoms. Trying to say what Israel has been saying throughout this entire book. But God, we've been doing all the right things. But their heart has been in a totally different place. Their heart has been trying to gain things for themselves without giving itself completely over to the Lord. And so many of us live this way. We may chase after prestige our entire lives, money, or comfort. I just want a comfortable life. Just trying to make a little bit enough money that I can just live a comfortable life. Power. Try to climb up the corporate ladder in a way that you are given positions of authority. Whatever it is, our hearts are idle factories says John Calvin, that we are essentially being drawn towards other things, trying to have one, essentially have an idol in one hand and hold God in the other. And the Lord says, I I won't have it. You cannot have 
your feet in either kingdom. You must follow after me wholeheartedly. So how is it then that one learns to love what God loves? Because this is a matter of affections. Our hearts are being drawn from one affection, the idols of this world, and they need to be drawn towards the affection of the Lord and to love what it is that God loves. So how is it that our hearts can be reoriented and drawn towards him? I like to compare this to when I first got married. So Crystal and I got married in 2009, and I was working in a job at a local YMCA where it kept me there until around 7, 7, 8 o'clock at night. So every day I would get home from work, and Crystal would have done the making of dinner. Well, as a young boy growing up, you know, for me it was meat, potatoes, maybe some vegetables, uh, maybe a, a thing of bread. Crystal, on the other hand, had a very different way of growing up. You know, maybe there was some meat, and there were some vegetables, but rice at every single meal. And about two months into our marriage, getting home and every single day having rice, I remember one night walking, i never forget, walking into the apartment and our back door led us straight into the kitchen, you know, and I walk in, I smell rice again, and my heart just sank. I was, it had been just several months of rice every meal. And I said to her, I was like, we sat down for dinner and I didn't want to be ungrateful you know we're newly married this is not a good way to start things off you know to seem like you're ungrateful for the meal that your wife is preparing for you and I remember saying um is it do you think think we could have a meal without rice at some point and she goes why (laughs) why would why would you not have rice right well, so one of the funny things, though, is over time, so we, you know, Crystal and I have figured out how to deal with that, but one of the funny things that has happened over time is my heart has grown to love rice, to the point now where if my, if Crystal and the kids, you know, her family lives in Malaysia, so sometimes they'll go and we'll be there for a little bit, but I'll have to come back and take care of things stateside, and they'll stay there, and I may be home by myself for two to three weeks while they're still in Malaysia, and guess what I made for dinner for myself? rice because I oh I gotta have some rice oh it's so good it's so easy to make we have a rice cooker oh man right like what has happened my affections have changed but my affections would never have changed if there wasn't a daily eating of rice if the diet hadn't changed now that has grown on me well in this same way how do our affections towards the Lord shift There must be daily spending time with him. There must be daily feasting on his word and learning what it is that he loves. And over time, you will find that as you daily engage with the Lord, that what the Lord loves starts to become what you love. But it's not so simple as just, Okay, I guess I have to read the Bible. Your heart hasn't changed at that point, if that's how you're approaching it. Oh, it's one more thing to do. God, if I read this, right? But there is also an aspect of approaching the Lord in prayer as you approach his word. Prayer and reading the word of God must go together. And it is taking time as you begin to sit down to read his word, to stop, to be silent, And to ask him, Lord, whatever it is that you want to teach me right now, 
in your words. Make my heart soft and tender to it. May I hear what it is that you want to speak to me right now through your words. Prayer and scripture reading must go together. Prayer has a way of humbling your heart. You know, if I've ever been, if I've ever had a situation where I'm having a conflict with someone, it becomes very difficult for me to sit down and pray unless I go deal with that issue. Why? Because I recognize what when you come to the Lord in that place of prayer, there's a recognition of what it is He has done for you. And then as a result, I have no place to have conflict. There must be some sort of reconciliation between me and that other person. Prayer has this impact. It is heart-changing. There must be coming to the Lord in prayer, asking that he use the time you have in the word to change you, and just even speaking practically of what that might look like for yourselves. If you don't have a regular time of prayer and scripture reading, you don't have a way that you daily do that, Find the time and place that you can commit to that. Wherever that setting is, whether it's outside on a patio, it's in your bedroom, it's on a chair in the study, wherever it is, have a place set aside, go there and meet the Lord. That sort of regular repetition will pay dividends because as you daily seek after the Lord, he will meet you in that place. And as a result, the things that the Lord loves begin to become the things that you will love. So what is it that God actually cares for? What are the things that we need to be seeking out, we need to be learning from as we approach the scriptures? What we see here, one of the big ones is holiness. Holiness. Essentially being clean before the Lord. And maybe you stop and you think to yourself, but wait a second, I, I thought you said a few minutes ago there was nothing I could do to be made right, be perfect before the Lord. And now holiness makes it sound like there's a bunch of things that I need to start doing in order to make myself right before the Lord. What that understanding of holiness and that understanding of what God desires from us ought to do is drive us towards Christ. As we look at the inability of the Israelites to follow perfectly after the Lord, it is the reason why every single one of these sermons I finish with a call towards Christ. Because if all I do is sit here and tell you that, the, that Malachi is calling us to be holy, right? Ver, chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. And then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. That sounds like something we've got to do in order to make ourselves right. But that's the reason why that verse drives us towards Christ. Because the only one who can make that offering pure and right is Christ and his blood shed upon the cross. So holiness is one of the big things that the Lord cares about. And as we approach the scriptures, that call towards holiness must then take us towards Christ 
and modeling ourselves after him with a recognition that it is he and he alone who can make us holy. So then what is the second thing that the Lord might care for? Well, chapter 3, verse 5 says, Then I will draw near to you for judgment for those who haven't been made holy by the blood of Christ. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages and oppress the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord. What is the other thing the Lord cares for? The Lord cares for the oppressed. And he cares how we treat the oppressed. Why? Because in our sin, the Lord did not have to reach out to us and love us. And yet he had compassion on us. And if we are unwilling to have compassion upon the marginalized and the oppressed in our societies, the Lord looks at us and says, do you understand what I have done for you? Do you get it? Do you know what I did for you? I sent my son to die for you. Go with me in your Bibles. Just jump over a few pages. Matthew chapter 25. Verse 31, when talking about the final judgment, this is what Jesus says. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, I'm sorry, Matthew 25, 31, in case I said that too quickly. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. And the king will say to those on his right, Come you who who are blessed by the Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry. Hold on, let me stop real quick. Come you who are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. How does one inherit the kingdom? The blood of Christ shed for you. Holiness. But then what does Jesus say? For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And the righteous, those covered in the blood of Christ, that's my addition in there, but just to emphasize it, will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. How we treat the marginalized and the oppressed is dictated by our understanding of the love that Christ has shared for us. So then if we jump back over here into Malachi, 
Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but you say how have we spoken against you. And you have said it is vain to serve God. We see here, it is not vain to serve God. It ought to be a joy that comes from a recognition of what Christ has done for us that then pours out to the society, to the people around us. We're going to come back to the second half of verse 14 in a second where the people say, what is the profit of our keeping his charge or walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? We're going to come back to that in a second. But I want to address first, do the evil actually prosper and escape the Lord's wrath? Because in verse 15, they say, and now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. So does that actually happen? I would encourage you to consider a few things. One is the physical realities of sin. And two are the spiritual realities of sin. Sin itself leads to isolation and destruction. You know, we live in a world that likes to present, flaunt itself, whether it's social media or on television, as if somehow sin is a glitzy and glamorous thing. But the reality of sin is very, very far from. Sin itself will lead to isolation and destruction. You know, we live in a world, for example, that wants to act, many people want to act as if somehow marital relationships can be opened up to include other people in them. As if you could be married to other individuals and somehow there isn't sort of a wake of destruction that comes with that. That is not reality. That is not reality. There is hurt. There is pain. There is heartache. It is not how the Lord has created our relationships to be. Another example might be the idea of certain forms of addictions. Whether it's gambling or drugs or whatever it is. Our society increasingly is saying, not that big of a deal. It's okay. You can control it. That is not the reality of these things. These vices grab a hold of your heart and they demand all of you. It leads to a restlessness within you. You know, there was a... My wife and I actually, it was interesting. My wife and I, our home is not far from... um, We're right around the corner from Whosoever Gospel, which you guys are generally familiar with. And um, and there is a... uh, There is... There, is a, there was a young man a few years ago who came in um, that was there, but before he got there, uh, he, w- he lived with us. His sister was in, in the church that we were attending, and he came and stayed with us for a little while. And he was one of these guys who ended up going there because he was struggling with drug addiction. And it was always fascinating to me because he was always playing this game as if he was, had his drug addiction under control or as if he was more functional with it. As I watched him live his life daily, it wasn't the case. 
And the interesting thing is, with much of our sin in our lives, we think that we have it under control. We think that it doesn't dominate us. We think that we can hide it. But it impacts our relationships. It causes brokenness. It causes fractures. And not only that, but just physically, sin takes a toll. Sin takes a toll on one's life. But there is also the reality of spiritual destruction. James 1.15 says, Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death, both physical and spiritual, if we're being completely honest. But the spiritual death is the one that we ought to fear far, far more. Revelation chapter 21, verse 8 says, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Sin has a toll. There is punishment for sin. So then we need to ask ourselves, this is where we go back to the middle of verse 14, what is the profit of our keeping his charge or walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? Essentially what Israel is asking is, why even follow you, God? And if we've been walking away, what is the point of returning? What is the point of repentance? Why even come back? There's three things that happens when we come back to the Lord or as we walk and follow after him. One is blessing. There is genuine blessing. It may not be physical in this world, but your heart at the, at the least, and frankly, that's actually probably at the most, but our tendency is to look at the physical things of this world. But at the most, I ought to say, Luke eleven twenty eight 28 says, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. As you draw near to the heart of God, and you learn to love what it is that he loves, what you do and how you act will change. We also see that as you change what you do, this produces fruit. Galatians 5, 22-24, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Oh boy. I would love all those things in spades more and more in my life. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. These things will come to you as you seek after the Lord. They will become more and more a part of who you are because it is who Christ is. And the final thing it does for us is that it prepares us for eternity. You see, evil will not prosper. Evil will not prosper. The Lord is preparing us for a day of glory. And the things of this world that we look at around us that may seem to be succeeding, the evil things that may seem to be succeeding, they are not. They will reap what they sow. Their destruction is coming. For some, that destruction happens on this side of eternity. For others, it happens on the other side. But evil will not go 
punished. As we come this morning, we're going to come to the Lord's table here in a few minutes. As we come, this table serves as a reminder to us. This table serves as a reminder of what Christ has done. That Christ can reorient our affections. That we, ought, we can learn to love what it is that God loves. It serves as a reminder that he suffered, died, was buried and rose again so that we might have life. And it serves as a pledge of his coming again. It serves as a reminder that the Lord will not only deal with evil, but will also stay faithful in bringing his people through to completion to the end. There comes a day, there comes a day when, when we will all, if you follow after Christ, get to stare upon the face of Jesus. It is going to be a beautiful day. And this table serves as a reminder of that. Of the body of Christ which was given for you. Of the blood which was shed for you.